welcome to Standpoints, the podcast, where we explore the Black experience, largely through a theoretical lens informed by Black feminisms, and from a perspective that valorizes pedagogies and practices of care within Black, Brown, mixed, and intersectional communities. This is our space for living and loving Blackness. We hope that it can be yours too. I'm Andrea Baldwin. In this episode, we examine the ways in which Black women graduate students at predominantly white institutions navigate these often oppressive and discriminatory spaces. Black feminists have for decades written about the academy as a space where they experience not only micro and macro aggressions, but also tokenism, marginalization, and where they are simultaneously invisible and hypervisible. For Black women graduate students who often feel and in fact are powerless to speak back to the injustices they experience in the academy for fear of retaliation and further marginalization, their academic journey can be very precarious and fraught with anxiety. Our guests today are Leslie Robertson-Fonset and Jariah Strozer, PhD candidates in the sociology department at Virginia Tech. Leslie is a sociologist and gender scholar whose research focuses on how women and girls engage with institutions, navigate inequality, and shape society. Her work examines how Black women and girls actualize agency and embody resistance to oppressive ideas of sexuality and gender in the post-colonial space. Jariah is a Black feminist researcher whose work focuses on medical sociology, health education, and public health. She's a certified health education specialist and has worked and advocated for vulnerable populations and communities in relation to public health concerns and social justice issues. So thank you both for joining us on the Standpoints podcast today. And I am so happy to um, know both of you in similar capacities as um, two students that I have the pleasure to advise. And so my question for you is to first tell me a little bit about your research. You want me to go first? Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm interested in Caribbean women, um, how they navigate um, institutional violence how they navigate spaces. My dissertation is on the sexual agency of adolescent girls in Trinidad and Tobago. I'm really curious about how women actualize agency when their power is limited limited by the um, systems of gender and racial oppression. And so I'm looking at all the historical and economic and cultural contexts in the Caribbean that shape society and shape how women experience the world. Um, yeah. Thank you. Jariah? <laughs> well, I am interested in Black women's health. <clears throat> Specifically, you know, um, when um, black women with bigger bodies enter medical spaces, how they're so quickly pathologized into unhealthiness and disease. Um, You know, speaking as a black woman with a little bit of thicker body, 
um, it's happened to me in my childhood and um, even, you know, watching my mom get older and her, you know, having different health procedures. Um, she's just so quickly told that she needs to lose weight. Um, she has bad knees, like are bone on bone arthritis and they're telling her to work out more without really helping her like, or even, you know, asking questions. She takes care of her older brother and sister. So there's a lot of, you know, it's layers to, um, black women's health. And so those are my interests and, um, yeah. All right. Thank you so much. Um, I want to start with, tell me a little bit about your journey to this place. And then this place is the PhD program in sociology at Virginia Tech. What brought you here? Happenstance brought me here. I was not looking at Virginia Tech. I was, I, I certainly, I knew about it. I had a friend who had done her PhD here. Um, I came here because I was, because I met an amazing scholar. <laughs> I met you. <laughs> I met you at a conference in Cuba. Um, I was there presenting on work that I had done with uh, youth in mental health. Um, but even at that time, I'd already begun to have questions that really couldn't be answered by psychology. They were more sociological and gender questions. Um, but I didn't go to this conference looking for any type of connection that would take me on a path to getting my PhD. Um, and, and at the time, I still thought that I was interested in completing a PhD in clinical psychology, which is my background. Mm -hmm. um, but that conference was life-changing um, because it became the reason that I came here. Um, and in deciding to do that, I wanted to work with someone who knew the Caribbean and who could understand and guide me to do the kind of work that was meaningful and accurate and grounded in all of the scholarship of the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And so I typically tell people when you are looking to go to a graduate program, it is important that you have an alignment with a mentor, mm -hmm. but it's also important that you immerse yourself in a department where you can, even from a very superficial view, see people that you might be able to do other work with. So I looked at what people were doing, and there were lots of people who talked about doing um, race and inequality, and coming from a public mental health background and a social welfare background, inequality is something that I'm certainly interested in. And as a black woman, perspectives on race uh, is also something that I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. I absolutely would not call myself a race scholar, but I think there's a way in academia where we put certain labels and statements out that communicate something. And so they communicated that enough for me that my deeper inquiry into you as a perspective advisor led me to think, okay, this is a place where I can work with this person and I can possibly work with other people. Mm -hmm. And that's how I came to Virginia Tech. Wow. Okay. Thank you. Now, Jiraiya is over here smirking. So I know she. <laughs> <laughs> well, my story is long. <laughs> the whole time I was trying, how am I going to cut this down into like two minutes? Um, <laughs> well, I am originally from California and I went to Virginia State University in Petersburg, Virginia, which is the sister school to Virginia Tech, long story short. And 
as I was graduating the program out there, um, there was a scholarship, like a tunnel scholarship thing from um, agriculture. I was in dietetics um, at the time in agriculture, in the School of Agriculture. So, of course, you know, two sister schools, there was tunnel, a tunnel of money. And I was like, well, I like Leslie, I didn't really want to go to Virginia Tech. I was actually wanting to go to A&T, North Carolina A&T. But you know, Virginia Tech had the money, the money. So um, I got here in a master's program <clears throat> and transitioned to public health. Um, and that's another story. Um, and I wanted to stay, I knew I wanted to get a PhD by the time I was going to, you know, finishing up the master's in um, the public health program didn't have, they have a doctor of public health, but they didn't have that program here so I know I'm a person I like to like by this time I like had a network and knew people so I was just talking to like um I talked to um a lot of black women that were just you know in either black caucus Dr. Faulkner um Dr. Brand of what I wanted to really do Mm -hmm. and they um suggested that I do medical sociology and talk to Warney Reed who was in sabbatical at the time but um was very supportive um i wasn't even accepted into the program and he had money for me for that semester because i graduated in december with my master's so there was support there and then i was like substitute teaching which i really loved um in the area um but still there was no like it was just me just moving off of the energy of me networking and talking to people um getting into the program and being very transparent like hey i'm not a good test taker um and talking to the graduate director then but i was already here i knew if i left the space that me having resources to get into a phd after leaving the space and you know being removed and either starting a job or being back home with my mom who has a lot of burdens that I would probably be helping with. Um, I knew I just couldn't leave the space. <clears throat> so I was just going to figure it out. Um, and then, yeah, so that's the quick and dirty story. <laughs> I hate that phrase. Um, that's the quick story. Um, yeah. And there's holes if you want to <laughs> ask questions. No, thank you both. This is um, some very good introductory information. Um, my next question is, so you both came through your different, you know, you came through your that bridge program, you came from um, meeting me at a conference. And so we all end up in this department working together. Um, so I want to know, <laughs> what has been your experience as a black woman working, uh, or what is your experience as a black woman PhD student in higher education at Virginia Tech, specifically what has been your, and you can go as deep or as not deep as you Mm -hmm. want to talk about your experience in the particular program that you're in. Mm -hmm. So what has been your experience is the question, as a black woman navigating this predominantly white higher education space? Mm. I want to link back to what I said about choosing an advisor and getting here. Mm-hmm. I did my master's. I was actually in a doctoral program before at another um, doctoral granting um, research intensive institution in the South. And so 
that experience, which was jarring and traumatic in many ways, mm-hmm. um, prepared me for a lot of things that I should be wary and cautious about. And so when I talk about looking at a department and having people to collaborate with and being discerning about choosing your advisor, I think that experience prepared me. Um, and so it has been, this is a word people like to use as a euphemism, it's been an interesting experience being a doctoral student at a PWI. But my experience and some of the difficulties I could foresee have been mitigated by having an excellent advisor who did what I wanted her to do, which was to buffer and shield me mm-hmm. from a number of things that could have come my way. One of the things that is very clear in our department, I can't speak for other doctoral students, is that there are a number of interpersonal minefields. There's a lot of, um, you know, a university is a bureaucracy. So there's a multitude of paperwork and there's a lot of nuance to knowing how to navigate, mm-hmm. how to choose your courses, um, when to take certain things, how to navigate summer employment. Um, there's just a lot. Mm-hmm. And your advisor must have, must be meticulous, I think, in knowing the things that are required and needed, but also in these systems, there's a lot of politicking, there's a lot of back and forth, and doctoral students or graduate students, I like to say in the university, are like non-persons or serfs. Undergraduates are fee-paying students. So their parents (coughs) have a lot of power and influence. Um, Staff, typically have the real strength of labor laws. They have a lot more portability. Mm -hmm. Um, They can leave the job at Virginia Tech or any other institution and go to a similar job at another place, even if there is a cost. And faculty have a lot of power, even though they often behave as though they don't. Mm -hmm. But graduate (laughs) students are the ones whose lives are most at peril because the interruption in their life to be engaged in doctoral work or in graduate work is more severe than it is for people who are employed. Mm. If they leave in the midst of completing their degree, if they leave without completing, they've already sacrificed time and money and they've not achieved the thing they came for and it sets them back. Mm. And so there are a number of pitfalls along the way where if your advisor is not guiding and helping and supporting you, then things become hellish. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I you were in that you were that way. You you guided me along the way. And so whenever I had concerns, whenever anything was confusing, whenever an experience that I had at work was difficult, I knew that I could come to you and you could help me navigate it professionally, but you could also provide support. Mm-hmm. That being said, interpersonally it has been somewhat difficult. I find, I, I've said this a number of times when I've met people outside of our department. I have formed friendships and built community with doctoral students, with graduate students, sorry, 
in other departments at the university, in higher ed, in human-computer um, interaction, in a number of different departments. And they have been overwhelmingly friendly and welcoming and fun and supportive. And other than black students or students of color in our department, that has not been my experience. Mm -hmm. It has been a sort of isolating, political, catty, kind of environment where even I was the president of the student organization and I could never understand how students, we are all in the same boat. We're all fighting for um, better conditions that would improve the lives of all graduate students. But there's so little camaraderie. There's so many cliques. Mm -hmm. There's so much infighting. There's a lot of pettiness. These things mean that whenever students confront any obstacles, they tend to confront them alone. Mm -hmm. This is magnified for students who are marginalized, who are from marginalized groups. Mm -hmm. So as a black woman and the only black woman in my cohort, I had the support of um, three or four women who were not black. One is a woman of color and two were white, and they were supportive. But I, as a black woman, I'm alone in an experience. Mm -hmm. um, as a black woman, sometimes the only one in a class, I'm alone in that experience. Even if faculty are to draw on their experiences as having been graduate students, which they almost never do, I'm still likely to be the only one who is a black woman. Mm -hmm. And so it was mixed in the sense that I knew that working with you was a way that I was shielded from a number of the negative things that I had experienced previously in graduate school. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that, Leslie. Thank you. Yeah. Jirai, you want to say anything, comment? Girl, you said it all. I mean, I don't even. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like holding back tears in the back of my throat. <laughs> um, I know it's been um, your journey has been particularly hard because you've been here for a while. You've been here, um, what six years now? Not including the masters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, by probably all like seven, probably more than likely. Yeah. I stopped counting. <laughs> Um, but yeah, Leslie said everything to the T of even, um, even the first thing that I talked about, um, before I found public health, I was pushed out of HNFE. I was pushed out with a 3.7 GPA. Mm. So, um, and then, um, I know I said, you know, I followed the money and that was the worst decision I could have ever done because, you know, if you don't have an advisor mm -hmm. and no money, you come in with no money, you're dispensable. Mm -hmm. And regardless of your GPA, regardless of what you're doing, um, you're dispensable. And that's just what it is. And faculty have the power. Mm -hmm. I was even trying to like, I got to a point where I walked in the president's office but the president couldn't do anything because the departments and the faculty had the power um during the time that i'm talking about this was like when michelle obama and the let's move program i was in a health program and we did a lot of community work in predominantly uh, black communities rural black communities between virginia and um north carolina and danville area so um the grants well, I was getting paid more than that I 
ever been paid in sociology, working in the BCC, anywhere. Um, they were getting money. <clears throat> and um, I could only imagine the other students <laughs> that didn't look like me, what they were getting paid. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. But it's like you know when you make decisions in grad school and you're like the first to go to grad school and no one's you know it's just you're just doing it and you're just moving through and you and you really don't have support when things go awry um so yeah the to answer uh the question has been a traumatizing experience um i still haven't i think all these tears are coming up because i haven't really even processed mm -hmm. that way back then 2013 is when i came here um and so you just you just move forward and you just push through and then you still get your invisible and then um coming into other programs i you know by this time like i'm a person i just network and i've would always find money. I just knew how the system, I came in, I figured out the system and how to get money and how to get GEAs and, you know, figured it out. But it's also, um, you know, that's exhausting too. And so you really have to build like not even community and network. I had a community of um, black grad students, um, a community outside of here where I was just driving just to get away. I had a community, we would meet in the library, X, Y, and Z. Like you really have to build a system. And I'm thinking about all these communities, all these people are gone. They've either graduated with, they came in to get a PhD and left with a master's or they just left, um, which is so heartbreaking to me because you know I'm thinking about all like I could probably build a list of black students who have came, amazing people, like smart, amazing people. But if you don't have the support and you're not gonna put up with certain, you know, things when you don't have to, it's just like it's just heartbreaking, um, you know. Mm -hmm. But. Um, yeah, those were my main points. Um, it has been a very um, difficult system in um, experience to navigate and get through. Um, like, you know, the experience of black women when you're hyper visible and also invisible at the same time. It's just um, you start to question your own existence. Um, and how to you know be and i didn't have an advisor until you came and we didn't start working really working with each other until what these last two years mm -hmm. um and it felt so good to have that support now like i could like feel like i could finally breathe and just like oh okay this is what it feels like this is what other people like experience okay this is what it's supposed to be um so yeah i really had to even build a community within undergrads like um, this GA that I have with the Black Cultural Center, like I look back and I was like, oh, I did all this. That was really like for me. <laughs> I, mean, we, I had fun. I had a blast. Um, but it also didn't. It was a perspective of health, um, but I guess it was I was going to say it didn't help me towards my degree, but it did. Um, it did because it helped me see because I really thought this was the experience of black graduate students. But working with black undergrad students, that this is also their experiences. Mm -hmm. And so like we were a force like Bach <laughs> and the president like 
I came in with I was like I came in with my stuff and then you know them and just knowing the resources that I did like we made stuff happen mm-hmm. um and they still call me to this day like they've graduated two three years ago and literally just got off the phone with one of the students but long story short is just like like Leslie said it's a minefield of yeah and I I you know I think I have a few follow-ups on that yeah go ahead um, <laughs> I so Funding has always been a consideration. When I went to graduate school before I got accepted, I, I, I got accepted into my undergraduate institution, Howard University, and I got accepted at the University of Kentucky. And the University of Kentucky offered a fellowship that was substantially more. Mm-hmm. And because it was an R1, it was a PWI, and I'd been to an mm-hmm. HBCU, I thought perhaps this is a good place to be. There's someone there that I can work with, and they seem to be others. Mm-hmm. And it became a very isolating and unfulfilling experience. Mm-hmm. I changed labs, and then I left with my master's. The department was not supportive at all. And in the in coming out of that, you learn about other black students' demise. That is always in, in secret. Nobody acknowledges the black students who've not made it out. And you only hear about them in the shadows later on. So that also happens in our department. We don't, all, we don't hear about the students who haven't made it. And the students who haven't made it are disproportionately more likely to be black or Latino or indigenous. They're more likely to be of a minoritized group. So there's that. There's also this thing that happens in in white space. So it happens at uh, predominantly white institutions where people who carry themselves or identify themselves as liberal, they understand intellectually that that there must be a polite um, and amicable engagement with black people. Otherwise, are you really liberal? Are you really progressive? Are you really not racist? Mm And what that becomes sometimes is having interactions with certain black people that are good. Because, mm-hmm. of course, I get along with these people. And, and, and so that person may be singled out as the good black mm-hmm. or the well-behaved black mm-hmm. or the one who is easier to, to interact with. So I am American. I was born in the United States, but I was raised in the Caribbean. So I'm exotic. I'm an exotic black. Mm-hmm. I sound different. And I'm quite aware that sometimes in white space, I am more, I'm an easier pill to swallow. You're more palatable. I'm more palatable. That's the word I'm looking Mm -hmm. for. And so I know that for students who show up in the space as fully black American or African American, that that might be something that's happening, that I'm the one that is the good black. And so I'm easier to digest. But I also come to this space um, fully formed and almost unshakable. And so I come to this space having worked for 15 or, 15 or so years in industry, in mental health, which was my field. I come having really diverse experiences, having worked in different places across the world. So when I come into a space... I feel quite comfortable and confident. And I'm also the same age or older than quite a few faculty. So those things also impacted my experience here. There are about five, there were about five or six black women in the entire sociology department, graduate students. And in last year's class, they admitted more black women in that cohort 
in in the year after the protests for Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter cohort. Than any <laughs> other, than any, uh, than any, that the entire cohort has more black women than in the entire department, which I find interesting. So I started calling them no, that's the, white the Black Lives way. Matter cohort. That's yeah? the white liberal way. But have you made a space? Have you prepared a space before them? So that when they get here, they can do the things they've said they want to do and the things they need to do. So, so that, that is something that is happening when we are in this space. So my experience is mitigated by having an advisor who is like me, is a black woman and a Caribbean woman who is fierce about protecting and, and advocating for students. And also because I come in fully formed and unshakable. Mm-hmm. And and I know that the way I am treated is different to the narratives I've heard from other students mm-hmm. in my capacity as president of the organization, in my capacity as a graduate student who is older and just the type of person I am tending to be a peer and a mentor. Students talk to me. White students talk to me, black students talk to me, Arab and Latina students talk to me, queer students talk to me. So I hear things. Mm-hmm. And so I can parallel what I've, what has been my individual experience with the experience of other people. And so, and I believe what they say. Mm-hmm. And if you hear a pattern in what students are saying and you get to observe for yourself, you can be clear. So, you know, this is never a situation where I do like, um, what's his name from everybody names, Chris? Who? <laughs> who when Gabriel Union was mistreated at, was it NBC, he gets on, you know, and says, oh, oh I never had that experience. Mm-hmm. No, yeah. this this is what mm-hmm. is going on in this space. Mm-hmm. Someone is singled out, mm-hmm. yeah, someone mm-hmm. is singled out as the bad guy, or mm-hmm. some are singled out as the bad guy, mm-hmm. and others are singled out as the good guy. And the other thing is, like one of the things like Jariah talked about in finding the money, I came here with an assumption that in our one institution, all doctoral students who are admitted are get given funding. Um, that was my experience in clinical psychology, that any doctoral program with its salt is giving students that they are interested in funding. And so there are students in our program who have not had that experience. And that also is challenging because you have to figure out, one, how you will um, fund yourself, but also the existential question I would ask is, what does my department think of me mm. if they can't invest in mm. me mm-hmm. to ensure that I get through this? Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, as on the other side of the of the of the of the equation as faculty here, um, you know, I I see a lot of this in terms of, especially when it comes, you talk about follow the money, but the money only covers summer. I mean, it just covers the semesters. Mm -hmm. It doesn't cover summer. And so I, I, as a black woman faculty who have really close relationships with grad students, um, also have these experiences that white faculty don't have. Mm -hmm. From the perspective of, if we're talking specifically about funds and money, Every every year I get my tranche of research funds. I cannot spend it. I do not spend it. I have to go and apply for grants to get funds to do the work that I have to do in order to fund my research. Because when I get that money, I know inevitably I'm going to have to support a black woman graduate student or one or two or three (laughs) Mm -hmm. during the summer with that money because... Mm -hmm. 
especially the ones who are immigrant, the ones who are coming here on a student visa who mm -hmm. cannot work anywhere else. Mm. And there are no pots of money that take into consideration what these students are going to experience if they can't pay their rent during the summer. Um, and that's just kind of talking a little bit about the money. And there's so many other experiences <laughs> that I've had as a black woman on the faculty side. But I also want to, you've both brought up all of these your identity, your various identities, your intersecting identities. And I want to touch on that some more, mm -hmm. uh, particularly as you're navigating a predominantly white institution during COVID. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you are <clears throat> two um, women who are very community oriented, <laughs> <laughs> who you both have talked about how community is important for you. During a pandemic, when we had to be isolated and alone in this space, uh, you've both talked about the trauma of this mm -hmm. space. Mm -hmm. How did you navigate being here as a black woman during a pandemic? And you also both, I know, um, and I know you've shared this with each other, and I hope you've shared with me previously that you both have learning disabilities. Mm -hmm. Navigating a, <laughs> this this space, which is traumatic. And, and I use the word violent. People don't you know, might not necessarily see this space as violent, but I feel mm. how violent it is to me mm. as a as a black woman. But let's say the space is one of that produces trauma, has these traumatic impacts. As two black women navigating a pandemic, um, being isolated with learning disabilities, um, what what did that feel like? What did it feel like? Uh, and I'm I'm using I'm very intentional in using the word feel <laughs> because what we do when we talk about these spaces is that we mm. talk about it them as being cerebral and the space of the mind. But mm. this these spaces have they produce feelings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um and so I wanna know in this very difficult time of isolation <laughs> as a black woman or as black women, what did that what did that feel like for you? I don't remember that year. Like I really, I had, you know, I'm a mom. So I had my daughter, she was eight months, 10 months when the pandemic started. Oh. I don't remember. Like I look back on pictures from her one year. Like I really, it's really a, a haze, you know, mm -hmm. on top of all the other things I was going through, you know, being a single mom and, you know, her father incarcerated in the area. It's just been like, I really don't remember. And I'm like, oh, shoot, <laughs> let's practice mindfulness now moving forward. Because mm -hmm. I want to remember what my baby looked like. I want to <laughs> remember those experiences. But um, I think by that time for me, um, I don't know if you met um, Deborah Smith in SSD. She is an angel. Like, um, she's a Jewish woman. And she let me know that, like, straight up like after and mind you I don't even remember I met her a few years ago before the pandemic and she's seen me like is the first person outside of Dr. Lebuski mm -hmm. who's a, you know a white woman who's seen me and um she's even explained to me like I remember like in um kindergarten I would get pulled out you know working getting worked with extra and then it stopped and then they never told my mom so she was like yeah you know there was these laws and policies like she was able to break it down to me where like I'm just crying on the table and then from that experiences and I don't even remember telling her that <laughs> she just like um she helped me 
And I remember when the pandemic started, I, like she was the first person I called. And um, I think before she came, she sat down and met with um, my two other advisors before, you know, we transitioned one off. Um, and she really helped me get through prelims. Like she's seen me. I think, yeah, I met her before prelims, even before I was pregnant. Um, and she heard me and she's seen me and she has helped me through since Um navigating at least SSD if I need books you know on my prelim books and how to get them and read them um you know with the disability and having the colors go um stuff like that so just really helping me the, in her capacity and that's you know before I met you I would lean on her and Christine like those were my go-to people um she helped me get extra timing when the department was like no she really fought for me um so navigating so i think by the time the pandemic started i had my resources in pocket like i knew who to go to and where to go to but i don't you know it was hard it was um it felt even more isolating because i the area doesn't support like single mother parent family so i had to move to the next city which is radford and so i felt even more isolated mm -hmm. um and the only thing that kind of keep kept me feeling like a part of the um Virginia Tech community was um, my me co-teaching with Cheryl, um, who's another black woman. And we taught um, intro to African American studies. And um, it was also a nice reconnection because we started together. And I think, you know, Cheryl has her own experiences, too. Um, but, yeah, that feeling um, I actually just wrote about it in my dissertation. Um, it's just like a black hole and mm -hmm. not feeling I broke um, like I was standing in a crowded room just screaming and no one would look my way mm. um so yeah wow wow thank you for that jiraiya because i was aware of how isolated um, blacksburg was my plan for surviving graduate school here was always to return to the washington metropolitan area which is home for me or to return to trinidad and tobago which is also home for me mm -hmm. blacksburg is one of the most difficult places to fly out of it is expensive and it is extremely difficult in terms of connections so getting to trinidad was always a challenge three or four flights which i think is unconscionable because i live in virginia mm. Um, and as a graduate student, being expensive also is an issue. Um, and it was really draining um, and exhausting. I thought that is travel planning is really, really difficult for me. And I don't know if that is to do with uh, my disability, which is ADHD. Um, so when I think about the practicalities of living in places, I think about how I can get to my family. Most of them do not live in the U.S., um, I have elderly people in Trinidad and Tobago, and a chunk of my family lives in the UK. Places that I think are quite easy to get to, but not from Blacksburg. Mm. In March of 2020, the borders for Trinidad and Tobago closed. So I was shut off from my family for two years. And so then being in this place that was already culturally sterile mm. and quite isolating like you know i tell people i kind of say jokingly you can't even get the right spices in Blacksburg. <laughs> i have to get things if i go to dc or new york so being literally shut off having the borders closed for two years it was one of the most difficult things because in my mind if something happened to my great aunt i couldn't get to her um and i don't think people noticed that i don't think i hit it but certainly 
outside of like my advisor or one or two people, one or two close friends, I don't think like in the department as an entity mm-hmm. thought of students like me. Mm-hmm. There's a student from Saudi Arabia. There's a student from Pakistan. Mm-hmm. There were so many of us who could not get to our people. Like we literally could not. It wasn't <clears throat> even a case of we could get there and then struggle to get back. Mm-hmm. We could not leave. Mm-hmm. If someone got sick, we couldn't see them. If we were sick, we couldn't see them. And so the isolation of the pandemic was even more magnified. The internet saved my life. I talked with my great aunt almost every day. I talked with Trinidadian friends um, in in England and New York. I have friends, um, other Caribbean friends and American friends in the United States and other countries, and we kept in touch. And people checked in on me in that way. So the people who were aware and made a conscious effort to mitigate my isolation were not people in this community. Mm -hmm. Because other than mostly the black women in this community, I have no community here Mm -hmm. in this department. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that time, you know, like one of the ways I remember Tressie McMillan Cotton talks about how institutions impose a degree of... Um, control over the space through emails. So mm-hmm. violence comes exa- is exacted in emails. Lots of emails come. Lots and lots of emails come. Lots of emails come with replies to everyone. And the effect of that is for me as a black woman in this space, it makes you feel even less a part of the community because mm-hmm. there are certain voices that you always hear. Mm-hmm. And so at the time, you know, you would see, I remember when... um when George Floyd was murdered and there were protests and then we found out how Brianna Taylor had died. I remember for a while having these thoughts like, I am not safe in Southwest Virginia. Police could just show up at my door. And, you know, I would say to myself, now, you know, this is not necessarily rational. What is the likelihood it will happen? And So it was this constant negotiating with myself. What is a rational fear? What is the history of America for all of the people that violence has happened to? Was it rational to them to be worried about it at the time? You know, I talked to a friend. I said, I don't feel comfortable going outside. Mm. And she said, you know, well, think about things like even if you don't go outside to work out, you know, can you draw? So so in the beginning of the pandemic, that was happening. And what I noticed from the emails was there was virtually nothing. There was there was nothing in those emails, that same space that people co-opted and used liberally, no one said anything until a graduate student, someone in my cohort, sent an email that was kind of like, you know, if anybody wants to talk to anybody, here's my number. And then another graduate student apply- replied, graduate students do not dip typically dominate the email space. And so it was very telling to me that the trauma that black people experienced in that moment was unnoticed or unimportant. Nobody could imagine that the suffering we experienced internally was real. And it was very real. Um, And so that is one of my memories from the earliest point of the pandemic. By the summer, like I, I should say, you know, I am a therapist. I was trained as a therapist and worked as a therapist. Our insurance is awful. <laughs> it is really awful. 
you know, I, they could have, like, there were so many grad students. I don't know why they didn't just give us what they give faculty and staff. It's really awful. I think it's kind of like catastrophic insurance. So if you have no medical needs, okay, whatever. But if you have even a few, the costs for things go up. It's a, it's a canyon that is um, not navigable to find out what is covered. And so trying to find out how I could see a therapist and not incur a lot of cost mm -hmm. was a challenge. And I, at some point, I found a number of black therapists and I was, and, and I reached out to all of them. And then when I got to the insurance, what they told me was that I would have this exorbitant amount to pay first and that I couldn't use any of those people because they weren't in network. It just was a nightmare. Mm -hmm. And navigating medical appointments, finding a therapist, those sorts of things. It's case management. It's stuff that, you know, some people get help with. And as you're juggling doctoral studies and you're juggling an assistantship and you're juggling surviving a pandemic, it's really hard to be able to navigate that. And so for me, that was a massive barrier to getting an additional form of help. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned that I have a disability. I was diagnosed after I had my master's degree, which is another ironic thing about academia and white spaces, I was in a clinical psychology program. There were experts on ADHD. And it was a therapist who was my team leader, my supervisor, who said, you show up in here sometimes in a way that I don't think is you. And I have a brother that has a similar problem and he didn't get diagnosed. Your age means that people would not have um, sent you for testing as they do nowadays. And I got tested. I was assessed and tested after I had my master's degree. So, and that was an excruciating experience, finishing the master's degree, not knowing that I had ADHD mm -hmm. and learning to navigate. Fortunately, there are a number of other ways that I compensate intellectually. So people don't always notice. And then I'm always in this weird space of, Get, a, get along and do what you need to do. Or do I need to like keep saying, hey, I'm over here and I mm -hmm. have a disability mm -hmm. so that people notice mm -hmm. and understand. Like for instance, in things that are mathematical, I can totally get it. And then it's not interesting and I drift away, mm -hmm. I'm distracted. And then I have all these black holes mm -hmm. and I have to figure out how to patch it all together. And so I show up in the room and I sound very intelligent and I'm following and I understand and I'm confident enough to say when I don't understand, but then I don't know what I don't know. Mm -hmm. And so that is the thing that happens in that case. Um, and so in things like that and standardized testing, I may not show up in the way that I present interpersonally. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was a difficulty. But with schoolwork, I have found so many ways mm -hmm. to compensate mm -hmm that the material experience of having a disability while completing the doctoral program, I think it is definitely masked in my work. Mm -hmm. So for me, the burdens were more social and emotional in this space. Mm -hmm. And the fact that people continually, systematically and committedly overlook the trauma that black people experience. Yeah, yeah. And I, and, and, uh, <clears throat> and this is, I mean, working with you both, like I, I know details on on a lot of what you experience. Um, Jariah, your experience uh, over this last academic year specifically has been um, particularly difficult. <laughs> and I can't find another word, but particularly difficult because we have been 
trying to get basic accommodations um, for a documented learning disability here <laughs> for you. Um, and the issue is that because the PhD, because we don't, because there's this ableist kind of mentality and discrimination happening in these spaces, what happens is that a lot of students with disabilities don't make it to the PhD. Mm -mm, that's true. Not because they can't. Not, not because, because they, they can't. And what we're finding is that when those people who have disabilities make it to the PhD level, they're not accommodated. It is mm -hmm. like you can't see that the same accommodations that you're giving to undergraduate students might be necessary for graduate students. Mm -hmm. The double time, the, you know, the, all the things that you need because they don't expect that students with disabilities make it this far. Yeah. So I don't know if you want to speak yeah. to your own. No, yeah, and there's like, there's so much stuff. It feels like just trauma after trauma. I forget stuff. I forget there's black holes in the whole, in the whole thing. Um, but, um, yeah, and that's what Deborah said when she first met with, um, and I'm talking about the SSD, my SSD advocate. She, when she met with Christine and, um, and Reed, she was like, you know, students with disabilities don't get this far and we really need to support her. Um, and I really, I remember that. I remember her saying that, um, but with all the back-to-back -back trauma, you know, you forget certain <laughs> highlights. And then you even mentioned like, this has been the difficult time. I'm sitting here like, this has been the best year because I had support. <laughs> you know, it wasn't me fighting and trying to do work and trying to, you know, but yeah, um, it has been a difficult year, but I think it's only been like, I could just finally just do my work and not mm. worry about writing letters and meetings yeah. and trying to advocate for myself and like, well, I'll say you've it's been, been difficult. It. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, you know, it's not, it's not fair to you, but it's like, it's not fair to me. It's not fair. It's system. not, it's just not fair. Yeah. It's not fair. Um, yeah. And to, to, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's. Let me just say it's been it's been it's been it's been really hard, um, not only at the department level, but at the institutional level. And I want to segue into the institutional as a whole, because all of these institutions are on the equity and inclusion oh, and diversity uh, bandwagon. Uh, <laughs> and things like we need to do better we are doing better you know we have more black people you know we have the black but what does it look cohort. like exactly what does it look like and so being in this space as everyone is talking about equity and inclusion and training and all of these things professional development all of these things um what I don't know what the question is. What's the question? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I would bullshit. say there's added labor that black women do by having to, they, they have to show up with a, a pre-written narrative of how they are good and safe and how it is important for them to be here and how competent they are and that they are, you know, friendly, palatable black women. Disabled students have to show up and they have to say, what I have is real. And I am not stupid. And the law requires that you accommodate me because what I have is real and I am not stupid. Mm. 
and the work, the practical and emotional labor that must go into that and the mind fuck it is having to do it while knowing that you shouldn't have to do it mm. is, you know, it is an, is, it's an emotional burden that is unimaginable. Yeah. Before the um, pandemic, when I was working for the, the BCC, I was uh, also the co-advisor for Bach who, you know, we, they advocate, well, we ag- advocated first, you know, underrepresented students. And um, that was the best position for me because I was like, we was on fire. We was ready to fight and then everything, but it became draining mm-hmm. very quickly for all of us. Um, and we, you know, we got engulfed in it and we're like, oh, shit, we're students. Um, mm-hmm. But even then they were talking about this Project 22 and bringing more lower class, first generational, more more black bodies, long story short. Mm-hmm. That would I would sit there in those meetings and be so livid because. Y'all don't even have retention. Like, it's not about bringing more people of color. It's about getting them through and Mm -hmm. getting them the degree that they Mm -hmm. came here to get. Mm -hmm. And so I would just still be just sitting there just so livid because, like you mentioned, therapy and being invisible during the freaking um, pandemic and George Floyd. I don't even remember that because by that time, I just the emails, I just, you know, I don't. I didn't do it purposely, but subconsciously I just stopped looking at them because there it wasn't a space for me. And I made my space within the BCC and, you know, being there for those students. And I got engulfed and lost in that as well. But, you know, I remember I had to do therapy, too. And I remembered I paid. I just found a life coach who I knew was a safe person, was my youth pastor. And I was already $5,000 in debt from calls for talking to Zakari's uh, father, you know, who's incarcerated. So I just added to the debt. Like, mm-hmm. I'm going to just pay the 500 to talk to her for two weeks. Like, mm-hmm. I know I just added to it. Thank God, you know, I am in this space and there was resources. If y'all don't know, there's money that the, we could talk afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I got them $5,000 $5, no more. But long story short is no one should have to, you know, just be like, I'm going to just pay $500 just to get therapy. Um, even though, you know, she's totally worth it. It was amazing. Um, definitely what what I needed. But as a student, as a single mom, as a, you know, it just didn't make sense. Um, mm-hmm. But like I said, it, there's a lot of, you know, people, especially, you know, with loved ones incarcerated that are already in debt. So I just figured... And, and you know, I it. think one of the things the university would say is, well, there's a counseling center. I... Graduate students need more options than having a counseling center. Mm-hmm. They, they do. It, it, it's oversubscribed, and that was magnified in the pandemic because all students were yeah. um, traumatized. Mm-hmm. But graduate students need better and more options than only having the counseling only center. The that is not enough. <laughs> it's not enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, and it's been impossible to get in. It's impossible to get psychiatric care through the... They, they want you to fill out this paperwork. I'm like crying and shaking. I can't fill out this paperwork right now. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. my goodness. Uh, I mean, this is obviously, we're, we're not laughing as right. it's funny. We're no, laughing because no, it is unbelievable. Because <laughs> if you don't laugh, it will cry. Yes. <laughs> and so I have a question that, which might be to our audience listening in, listening in a mm-hmm. little bit controversial, but this is a, this is a space to talk about blackness and talk mm-hmm. about black feminist um, um, 
thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, and so one of the things as a black woman who navigates this space, mm-hmm. because the space is actually at its foundation, uh, steeped in anti-black you know, racism, mm-hmm. there's a way that because black women's bodies in this space may be a little bit more jarring <laughs> that the university tends to co-op brown people mm-hmm. to do this work. So yes, black women are used to do this work. Mm-hmm. Yes, black women are burned out doing the work. But I'm interested in hearing from you if you've had any experiences on the student side where other non-black folks of color are engaging in this work in ways that prop up the discrimination, the exploitation of blackness. I'm just throwing this out there. You don't have to answer, but it is just a question that I'm interested in kind of teasing out from my own self. So I'm throwing, and I've, I have felt this on the faculty side. So mm-hmm. I'm wondering if this is something that is also felt on the student side. The student side isn't very diverse. I'll say that first. <laughs> so, so the lines, I, I see, it seems like we're going to have a more diverse um, cohort coming in this year <laughs> in sociology. But the student side is not very diverse um, ethnically. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, it's largely black and white, right? So, so it, you know, it becomes, the, it becomes a nuance in those, in that sort of binary. Mm-hmm. Um, and other than that, um, there are things that I n- notice, but they are disconnected from my experience. Mm-hmm. And so I leave them alone mm-hmm. um, because this is an institution. Institutions don't just change on the might of one person and they mm-hmm. don't change overnight. Mm-hmm. And because this is inherently an oppositional space for me as a black woman, a violent space, I came here to get what I came to get and to leave as soon as possible, Mm -hmm. as unscathed as possible. So I closed my eyes to a number of things that didn't serve my purpose. Mm -hmm. Um, Yes, those dynamics are here. Um, And so it means that sometimes you can't make an alliance with someone who you should have an alliance with or People are articulating allyship, but you are seeing them showing up in a way that looks just like, mm-hmm. you know, for example, white feminism. Mm-hmm. You know, as as erasing your hardship, erasing your burden, and um, and and not and violent towards you, right? Um, but yeah, just some of it, particularly at the student level, because as I said, students can create ruckus amongst themselves, but students have um, limited power in terms of disrupting your life. Or certainly the power that they have to disrupt your life is significantly less than faculty and administrators. Yeah, and then you also said, My trajectory slowly changed because when I was moving up here from Virginia State, you know, my mom is was here. She was telling everybody, excited. We were in the post office, <laughs> you know, everywhere. And then the people back there were like, well, be careful. We were kind of like, and literally it was wow. like every, 
Like if we were in Target or whatever. Yeah. Be careful. And we're like, well, what the hell are they talking about? Like, you know? I'm like, well, maybe they're just, you know, because, you know, people also would say, oh, you know, you may get, um, what's the word? Um, I forgot the word, but it's like I was used to being the only black. I'm from California. I was the only black kid in kindergarten, elementary, preschool. Like, okay. that wasn't the thing. It was the thing. Here is the, I don't know, it's the antebellum. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but um, yeah, this is really the South. This is yeah, the South. And people were telling us, but I'm thinking like, well, it's 2013. Like, what's gonna happen? So my original plan was to get in, get the degree, get out. But as I kept running into obstacles, I'm like, oh, this is what they were like. Yeah, yeah. this is what they mean. <laughs> So by the time like I got the master's, I'm like, I still want to get a PhD. Like nobody's gonna tell me what to do. <laughs> and I'm still helping students. It's like I got engulfed because this is it wasn't just it wasn't right. I just turned into a my friend a trailblazer. Or turned into, you know, you just be you're just here and you're just like, well, this isn't right. Mm-hmm. And I see this pattern and so and so left and they were just here. And it's like, oh, okay, so well, we just gotta just fight. When you're like, oh shit, I'm supposed to get in here and go. <laughs> I was supposed to get in and get out, but now that's my plan. I'm back to plan yes, A. <laughs> yes, yes. But it's just so sad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I always say, like, this is the first place where I had to fight for education. Mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, but yeah. You both. Um, are definitely due for congratulations. Thank you. Um, because um, this is my opportunity to publicly introduce Dr. Fonset <laughs> because Leslie just got her PhD and will be out of here. Yep. <laughs> and Jariah is going to be defending her dissertation come June. That's right. <laughs> and will be out of here as well and so i just want to congratulate you all um but before we end i wanted to talk a little bit about healing Mm -hmm. i want to talk a little bit about what will you take with you in terms of what 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 are you what have you learned from this place that will not leave you in terms of moving forward like the things that you think you need to do, um, what, or maybe put another way, what is, what would be your advice to black women who want to take on a PhD, mm. come on this PhD journey? <laughs> so first of all, I want to hear about, about that. Like, what are you going to take with you? Well, maybe first, what, well, maybe all together. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it's, it's like three questions. I want to hear about what are you going to, what have you been doing to heal? What are you thinking about doing as you leave this place because of insurance problems, of course, <laughs> regarding healing? <laughs> um, and also because of the space, the space. Mm. Um, I'm not sure how do we healing in a space, space mm. of violence, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we've had to do yeah. this, but how do we move forward um, what do you take with you? What is your advice? Like that's three questions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so those are the questions. Yeah. Um, I think for me, it's 
still a process Mm -hmm. because like I said, I really just like (laughs) still moving since I've gotten here since 2013 and not even processing what happened in the first program. So for me, um, you know, 2020, I really started my healing process from things outside of academia. Um, And just recently, like, writing my dissertation and making it personal when it like you're told not to like getting all my raw feelings out that has been my healing process in these last few weeks um because it's not separate for me um and my dissertation is about healing so i was able to get a lot of things out that i didn't even know was still there um so for me it's still happening and i think um even after i'm gonna need some aggressive therapy (laughs) uh all jokes aside but yeah i'm still i don't i don't know you know i don't know because i'm still in the midst of it Mm -hmm. and just seeing light finally (laughs) after years um so i don't i don't know and the vice you know i know everybody's journey is different but I would um, advise if other black women can have a good advisor, if, you know, if, and if that situation is not possible, you know, if it's just a situation like mine where they just found a program that suits them and trying to figure it out. I don't know. Ask <laughs> <laughs> me in a few weeks. I don't know. Um, because, you know, it's it's everyone's story is different, but I would say to them, you know, just know who you are, and know that, you know, you could get through it and you could do it. Um, and just my thing is having different communities, especially outside of the institution, that saved me. Um, yeah, just having space to get away. Yeah, thank you, Leslie. So I want to start by quoting Tracy McMillan Cotton. Let's go. The institution cannot love you. Mm-hmm. But black women are still disproportionately getting more degrees and certificates because we need them to survive. Mm -hmm. So be discerning in choosing an institution. The practicals are important for you, even if people who are of privileged identities don't need to worry about travel or getting the right foods and having a community center. Those may be your concerns and your concerns are valid. Be very discerning about picking a faculty advisor and dissertation chair and always have at least three other members of faculty who have different levels of power and resources and are willing to use them for your um, advancement. You can't enter an institution and rely on just one person. No one person is really able to do that. I will say that you have done way more, way more than any one person, you know, it's almost like you're superhuman and I don't even like using that (laughs) label, but you do need a team. And I mean, and I also have to say my committee has been excellent. I have a committee and I think that is unique in academia Mm -hmm. to have a whole committee that's really been pouring into you. Oh yes. And so, Mm -hmm. so you, you need a good committee, but you definitely need a good dissertation chair, but you also need to go outside of that committee to people in your department and or people in your in the university who can advocate for you, who may know of other funding, who may know of summer support, 
who will write letters. Mm -hmm. Be very focused on your project, as focused as you can be before you get here. Be open to being flexible and changing it if it is necessary. Mm -hmm. We tend to make decisions based on the law of sunk costs. I've put all of this effort or energy into this thing, so I should stick it out. That is not true. Sometimes you have to jump ship and start anew and getting as much consultation on whether that is what you should be doing, as much data as you can to make that decision is a good thing. For me, I I couldn't go home. I couldn't go to my different homes. So I really in the summer created a home space. I created a study environment and a house that was welcoming and soothing and comforting to me. When I felt comfortable, I took walks all over Blacksburg and I took pictures of all the wildflowers and I looked at the mountains and I had a garden and those things brought me joy. Um, and so you should cultivate a home space mm-hmm. in the tradition of, is it June Jordan who talks about home space? June Jordan, the hooks. Uh, yes, but you could also cultivate home space by finding other people of mm-hmm. similar identities who will love you and support you and know what it is like mm-hmm. so that you can laugh and feel a fully well understood and well grounded joy, mm-hmm. you know, that is not superficial because you will need that. I still remember the last BCC event that you hosted. Um, before I talk about it because it was wonderful you see like I went to Howard University so it reminded me of being at a HBC I felt there was a home space at the BCC on that day I wasn't at this isolate this Mm -hmm. institution where I was always the only one Mm -hmm. and isolated and so find those organizations and do all of those things and do the things that the white people do Mm -hmm. try them out Mm -hmm. you know yeah And, and and always remember that you came prepared for this and sure. you can do this. Um, and you, you've come to the institution fully formed. You know, learning and growing doesn't mean that you've not come fully formed. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do it. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. So Thank you. I want to shout out um, all the other black women who are here who have who are not featured on this podcast today. I want to shout out Solidarity, our black yeah. women's writing group on campus. <laughs> Um, and just just a beautiful bunch of black women. Um, and so thank you to Jariah, the professor of all the feelings. <laughs> and to Leslie, who I is the Leslie, who's the people's choice for the most <laughs> for the most outstanding PhD student right. in the sociology department, yeah. academic year 2021-2022. I'll say that again. <laughs> the people's choice. For the most outstanding PhD student in the sociology department for the academic year 2021-2022. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was this was great. Thank you. Our guests on today's episode are Leslie Robertson Fonset and Jariah Strozer. Thanks so much to our guests and thank you for listening. To learn more about our podcast and stay up to date with us, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Standpoints Pod and on Twitter at Standpoints Pod One. Standpoints is produced in association with Virginia Tech Publishing. Our producer is Joe Fort and our production assistant is Jenea Amore. For more information about podcasts produced by Virginia Tech Publishing, please visit publishing.vt.edu and choose podcasts from the drop-down menu. Our theme music was arranged by Prince Predator 
with vocals by Aura Cadet. I'm Andrea Baldwin. Please join us again on the Standpoints Podcast. I'm sorry, I'm sorry.